0: Hey, everybody, quick content warning. We do talk a little bit about cardiac and eye surgery in this episode. So if you're a little bit squeamish about medical procedures, uh, you may want to tune into a different episode. Just wanted to let you know.
1: The first thing I should say is that I think my high school English teachers were shocked to find out that I became a writer because I wasn't the typical student who's had a real love of literature. I think I was probably too immature to really appreciate all those great books that we were reading. Uh, Now that I've written books I read with a much more um, incisive an intelligent view towards what the writer has accomplished or or the way they've done things.
0: You're listening to Chief Executive Auntie, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Duan Faltz. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Lamb. He is a retinal surgeon at New England Retina Consultants and also the author of Repentance, Two Sons of China, and Saving Sight. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me a bit in your own
1: words, what do you really do? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that. Um, professionally, I I am a retina surgeon, which is the kind of eye doctor you really never want to see because we are the ones who take care of the really bad stuff where people are going blind, like macular degeneration, uh, retinal detachments, macular holes and stuff like that. So in my day job, um, I uh, am operating on people in the hospital and seeing patients in my clinic and helping with research studies. And things like that. Um, But what I really do is take care of my kids with my wife with four kids aged eight to 16. And another thing that I do, which is a little bit more episodic is is writing, as you know.
0: Yeah, I loved your books. Thank you for sharing them with me. Um, Are you working on anything new right now?
1: Um, I am just toying with some new ideas about maybe a nonfiction book related to medicine, but I'm kind of in the weeds now with my kids. You know, I used to have a lot more time, ironically, to write when my kids were very young because they didn't have any activities um, or their activities were very simple. Now I'm basically a chauffeur, it seems like. I'm literally spending many hours a week driving my kids to the various activities or helping with carpools and things like that. So um, we'll see. I kind of see the next season of life is getting my kids launched, <laughs> but um, uh, maybe in the future I may have more time, but you know, it's a long life and uh, you never know what's gonna happen next.
0: Yeah, so walk me through a typical work
1: day for you. Uh, sure, so so yesterday was an interesting day. I. Started my surgeries at 7.30 uh, in the morning, and there was one patient I did who had severe bleeding in the macula, which is the center of the retina um, from macular degeneration. So she was legally blind. And in this situation, I had to try my best to move the blood out of her macula so that she could see better. Instead of seeing a huge dark blob in the center of her vision, which had made her legally blind, I was trying to move it. Uh, so that she could see more clearly again in the center and the 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 key part is that when the blood's under the retina i can't suck it out without damaging the retina so um i have to kind of use medicine to dissolve the blood and put a bubble in the eye and push the blood down essentially Uh, so that was one surgery another surgery i did was to fix a, a person who had a retinal detachment which many people know is um very serious and and we did those surgeries, and they went very, very well. And then in the afternoon, I went to the clinic, and I saw patients there. Um, so, I, you know, medicine these days is kind of busy. You know, there's a lot of patients to see. There's probably a definite shortage of doctors in the, in the country. I, I live in, a, in Western Massachusetts. Um, it's kind of an underserved medical area. So it's really... A situation where there are so many patients to see and a limited amount of time, so it gets very hectic. And I'm sure anyone who's been to a doctor can can see what that can knows what that's like.
0: How many patients do you typically see in a day?
1: Mm, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to see at least fifty patients a day Whew. in a full day, <laughs> and it could be many more sometimes. It's really um, there's a lot of emergencies that come in. Other yeah. eye doctors will have urgent things like. A nuance at wet macular degeneration, or a retinal detachment, or a retinal tear, or a macular hole that they want us to see them right away. Some of the visits are very fast. Like we do a lot of believe it or not, eye injections for wet macular degeneration that people kind of know they're going to have them. We don't have to go through the whole rigmarole in the exam every single time they come in and get a simple injection or treatment, and they can leave. So there's a whole variety of people. I mean, you could have everything set in the morning, in the morning with your schedule totally planned out. And then catastrophes occur. You'll, you'll have somebody who comes in, you literally spend like 30 minutes to 45 minutes just talking to them because it's such a serious situation that they are dealing with and are confronting. And it throws everything out of whack. So it's it's, it's kind of like when you go into battle, uh, the saying is no plans meet, uh, no plans uh work once you've had contact with the enemy so basically in real life your plans are only plans in real life it's always very different
0: yeah for sure the days are like yeah um when you were writing your books um when do you when do you fit that
1: in well when the kids were younger i i i fitted in Basically, I wrote these books because I was really passionate about history, which is my my academic background. Before I went to medical school, I was a history major in college, and I got so passionate about these ideas. Like, my first book was about World War II in China, and I'd studied uh, all about Americans and what they'd done in China during the war when we were fighting the Japanese, Um, and I was in medical I was in residency, actually, and I was just daydreaming and thinking to myself, gosh, I really wish I had a way of sharing this history with people, because even though a lot of people know a lot about World War II, I bet you there are some aspects of World War II that people don't know that much about, like the war in China. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really have time to write a nonfiction book about it. So I said, well, what if I wrote a novel, like an exciting war novel that would convey an interesting and romantic and epic story, but also educate people with a history that I wanted them to know And so when you're passionate about something, you kind of just make time. So this would happen um, when I was supposedly helping my young children go to bed. Like my wife would, (laughs) would knock on the door and say, how come it's taking so long to put Daniel to bed? And she'll find like the room dark and Daniel's asleep. And I'm just with my computer after like two (laughs) hours, you know, or my other kid would be swimming a lot. So I'd go to these internally long swim practices and, Sometimes I would just be typing in the corner in another area because it was the humidity in the pool was annoying and I would sometimes just miss his races to be quite honest. So you just get, you just find time. I used to watch a movie every night and once you stop doing that or take a break from that, you basically have a lot more time on your hands.
0: This is true. We, yeah, we used to, we used to watch movies and TV shows a lot more before we became parents and that doesn't happen as much anymore um are you are, do you like to outline your stories do you just kind of dive in and see where they lead you um i'd love to i love hearing about writer's processes yeah
1: so the first thing i should say is that i think my high school english teachers were shocked to find out that i became a, a writer because i wasn't the typical student who's had a real love of literature literature i think i was probably too immature to really appreciate all those great books that we were reading. Uh, Now that I've written books, I read with a much more um, incisive um, and intelligent view towards what the writer has accomplished or, or the way they've done things. So for me, I usually start with an aspect of history that I think is really cool. So for example, for the World War II book, which was called Two Sons of China, I had discovered this secret kind of, well, not very well-known mission where Americans who were, of course, helping the nationalists in China against the Japanese, uh, Americans were kind of frustrated that Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists weren't really prosecuting the war very assiduously against the Japanese. But they heard about these freedom fighters in the northern part of China. And these guys were apparently... Um, prosecuting a very effective guerrilla war against the, the, the Japanese. And these were actually the Chinese communists, believe it or not. Mao and his um, movement had essentially basically become isolated in, in northwestern China, which is where they landed after the Long March. And they were supposedly fighting the Japanese very well. So these Americans went up there and they uh, investigated the communists. They fought with them. And they actually were really favorably impressed. I mean, these communists were... Uh, you know, very motivated. There was none of the banditry or um, poverty that was basically endemic with the rest of China. And uh, the nationalists had to basically kidnap people to be in their armies and the, the, the communists were very effective and people were very, very loyal and motivated. So they were basically viewing the communists as like these agrarian reformers, and they wrote many favorable reports to the State Department about the communists because they were, that's what they really believed. Of course, they didn't know that the communists or Mao would be a very bad totalitarian um, leader in the end. Um, and the tragedy of this story was that during the McCarthy era, all of these Americans who were the Foreign Service Uh, officers were basically, uh, uh, they lost their careers. They were accused of being communist sympathizers and communists. And it was really tragic. So the bottom line is this was a story that I felt like a lot of people would be interested in. So I said, well, let me think about how I can arrange a story about that. And the repentance book that I just wrote was about the amazing story of the Japanese Americans who fought in World War II in the 442nd regimental combat team. Many of them had families incarcerated in camps. In uh, internment camps at homes, there were volunteers from Hawaii, there were volunteers from the mainland, and they fought with amazing valor in Europe. So when I have an idea, then I think, well, what can I do to make it an amazing story? And what I learned in historical fiction is that you really have to emphasize the story over the history, because if Mm -hmm. the story is not compelling, the characters are not interesting, then nobody's going to read your book, essentially. And uh, that's when I think about the relationships, right? So I think I'm, I from the beginning I was very I had a, I had an affinity for writing World War II type prose and battles and things like that. That that was really no problem for me. What was what I had to learn as a writer um, was how to write about relationships and frankly how to write uh, fiction. And I had a lot of help with like you know agents and editors and friends who were um, willing to help me uh, improve what I'd written. I learned that fiction is in some ways it can be learned, you know? So when I'm writing a, a scene, I kind of picture myself in the scene, like I'm in a movie. And there's a few things that a fiction writer does to try to make it more real. So the first thing you do that I do is I use my five senses. I say, okay, if I'm in this scene, what is my character seeing, feeling, tasting, hearing, And then I choose one or two of those things to write about, to to explain into the scene. And then if you throw in the random fact, like the random occurrence that will take the reader by surprise, like, you know, that there was a dog barking off um, down the street, you know, or, um, you know, that there was a taste of metal in the air, you know, after a battle or something like that, then those are the random facts that make it also seem more real. Um, So, I do outline. I do kind of know where the main aspects of the story are going to go, but um, it does kind of take a long time. I mean, these writing novels, as you may know, just takes a really long time and books do evolve. Eventually they get better and better, I think, but you have to be very patient.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, going back to your point about lear- about you know teaching history through fiction, honestly, I think I've learned the majority of I'm also of, I'm Chinese and Taiwanese, and I've learned the majority of Chinese history through fiction, um, because it's not taught Mm -hmm. in, it's certainly not taught in social studies class. Like, I think we had one day about, oh yeah, then China became Mm -hmm. communist. And what I'm like, "Wait, wait, 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 like there's all this stuff in the background. Like, I think I learned about the Boxer Rebellion through fiction. I learned about, um, yeah the 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 basically world war ii in china through various fiction books and um i don't know it seems like an interest i think fiction can be a way to I don't know, almost like reclaim lost history because those are the stories don't get talked about um right but, if you, but you can find yeah, a I way think that that historical tell those
1: fiction things. is very effective because number one you're reaching audience that may or may not feel compelled or interested in picking up a nonfiction book. So you're already, you're going to convey uh, a lot of the interesting history to a a whole group of people who might otherwise think, frankly, history is boring. Uh, So it's, it's really great to do that. And then it also gives you the opportunity to really delve into um, what it's like to be a person in that time or in that circumstance, right? So you can, Make help the reader empathize with a, somebody who is dealing with a dilemma in a different time in a different place than them in a way you couldn't do with a nonfiction book mm-hmm. um, at all. So that's really a neat thing that historical fiction is able to do.
0: You mentioned that you your academic background before you went to med school was in history. So were you a history major?
1: I was. I, okay. um, I was one of these strange kids who really loved history. When I was a kid, I would like devour all the history and biographies and the children's section of the library and i remember i would be so excited to go i lived i grew up in springfield illinois which it has Abraham Lincoln sites, which is fabulous, but there weren't any, like, Civil War battlefields nearby, and and that's the stuff. The military history is what I was most excited about, so when I would finally, like, get to go to some battlefields or something, I remember it was like going to Disney World. It was just so <laughs> cool, and I would just sit there and try to imagine what was happening, and my siblings or the people I would be there with would not – they would just patiently kind of let me – look around. It's kind of like in a museum when you're with somebody who wants to read every panel, but you're not as interested, then you have to just exhibit a lot of patience, obviously. So I've had I'm a lot the, of, pa-
0: I'm a panel reader too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you know that you were ultimately destined? Well, I shouldn't say destined, but did you like, were you planning to go to medical school? Or like, what well, did you already know that? Or did you decide that along the way?
1: To be honest, I probably knew in the back of my mind that was almost definitely going to happen. I mean, I did go to college and, Try to consider everything, all these other things, and, and explored uh, different avenues. And, uh, but the thing was, my dad was actually an interventional cardiologist in our small city. And it really was uh, not unusual to um, picture this. You're a little kid. You're walking around the mall. There's only one mall in our city. <laughs> or the streets. And you basically run into all these elderly people who stop you and bend down on one knee and get eye level with you and say are you going to be a great doctor like your dad he saved my life or he saved my mom's life and when you're like a seven or eight year old kid um that leaves a really indelible mark on you right so you you basically realize that you know helping people um or being a physician could really be an an awesome and fulfilling thing to do you know so i i was always kind of like a dilettante like i wasn't A pointy person, like they talk about college applicants as pointy or well-rounded. I was more pretty good at a lot of different things, but never really great at at one thing. But I would I was always very uh like I always enjoy learning everything, you know. I I was intellectually curious, like you know, now I'm a very specialized surgeon. Like I only operate I used to think being an ophthalmologist was specialized enough. And I would just be focused on the eye. Now I actually focus on just the neural tissue inside the eye, just the retina. And so I, I'm very specialized. I don't have to use 95% of what I learned in med school. But to be honest, when I was in my psychiatry rotation, in my OBGYN rotation, I was fascinated. I mean, I enjoyed learning about all those things. And I think that wanting to learn the stuff and being interested is really what helps you get through the arduous training you know so I was in college and I was studying history and I was just doing my required pre-med courses which were frankly very similar to what we learned in high school um Mm -hmm. like the, the biology physics chemistry um and I did say to myself I could go to history I could go to history grad school and then I could spend many, many years reading and focusing and writing about a topic that's very erudite and extremely, uh, detailed. But to be honest, I would probably end up working for years on something that very few people would read. I mean, I might, I, I saw that a lot of the history suggestions would end up writing a book, but it would be a book that very few people would read. And I said to myself, I, I'd re- I love interacting with people and helping people. And I said, I'm, I think I'm going to do medicine. And I think, and I've never regretted it. It's great. But during training, uh, you know, I realized I still had this desire to, to talk about history, to write about history and to share that with others. And so I was lucky to be able to do that in this way.
0: That's awesome. Uh, isn't, the, isn't the dad in repentance a cardiologist?
1: Yeah, He's a cardiac surgeon, actually. Okay, okay. So that I I remember. So my dad was a car, interventional cardiologist, which is basically a medical. You go to medicine residency, then you do cardiology, and a lot of the cardiologists lucked out because they got an awesome procedure where they're literally saving lives by opening coronary arteries of people who just had a heart attack. And they've actually taken a lot of work away from cardiac surgery. But when you're in medical school and you watch cardiac surgery, it is incredible. You'll never you'll never forget it. You. I remember uh, you watch it. They open the chest, they stop, they literally take the blood, divert it to the heart lung machine so that the heart can be stopped and be operated upon. To stop it, they dump a bucket of ice into the chest cavity. Then they're sewing these like gossamer tissues together with really deft movements. It's amazing. They're like basically bypassing coronary arteries. Then when they're ready, they bring the blood back to the body. They go off the bypass, uh, the heart lung machine, and then they use these paddles to restart the heart. It's amazing. You're looking at it and you're saying to yourself, I'm not sure God intended us to be able to do this. And (laughs) so I, I thought being a cardiothoracic surgeon was kind of amazing, but ultimately I, I realized that number one, the training would be very, very arduous, much more than the field that I chose, which was ophthalmology. And to be honest, the, the, a lot of the business of cardiac surgeons has been taken by less invasive tactics like, you know, interventional cardiology. So, um, actually, cardiac surgeons are, much, are, are were way busier before than they are now. Of course, what they, what they do is amazing, and, I mean, people are getting heart transplants and stuff like that. So, you can tell that I, I'm not having, like, too much envy, but I, I made the choices that I did, but I think that there's a lot of great fields in medicine out there, and I learned that every field of medicine is very important. You know, I used to think, well, rehab medicine, pain medicine, allergy, maybe those are not the most uh, important fields that I might consider, except when you meet a patient with the problems that that field uh, specializes in, you realize that is the most important thing to these people. And so there is no field of medicine that is not crucial and important.
0: Yeah, for sure. My I think my mom always wanted a doctor in the family. Didn't happen. I married a doctor, but not that kind of doctor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about it is, what's interesting is that, you know, you may have heard this, that most, a lot of doctors kit don't want their kids to be doctors. Mm. Now, I think in ophthalmology, it's a little bit different. Like a lot of ophthalmologists love what they do. It's, an, it's a little bit less demanding. So there's a lot of ophthalmologists I know who would love for their kids to be ophthalmologists. But I think that I have seen... That it's true, you know, medicine is is a lot of a ha- is a, it's a lot of hassle because of all of the requirements and all the paperwork and e- electronic medical records is just makes it so frustrating. Um, and the public, I think, when my dad was a doctor, you know, for number one, be, your profession was really your identity. So. And it was at a time when fathers weren't really expected to do as much as the fathers do now, right? So you could really just do your profession and put all of your identity and self-worth into that. Plus, you, had, you were living in an era where basically doctors were really put on a pedestal way more than they are today. I mean, I think doctors, especially with insurance companies basically dictating where people can go, are they kind of seen as technicians more than anything else. And as I've already alluded to, the time that you have with the patients becomes very limited because... You're rushing essentially you've got to basically mm-hmm. treat as many people as possible because the need is great you know so um, I mean you could say I'm gonna see fewer patients but then your wait to see you would be six months instead of three months you know so it's really a tough situation
0: I, re- I loved history in high school as well really? and I remember talking to somebody one of my parents friends and they were like what are you going to major in and I was right. like you know I really like history and they were like oh you yes. will be starving. Worthless, and I'm like, right? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the liberal arts college feel? experience
1: truly is a luxury. I mean, I, I did a rotation in Engl- England when I was in med school, and if I had decided if I wanted to be a doctor in England, I would have had to decide when I was sixteen. Instead wow. of going to college, you go to a seven-year medical training which includes the equivalent of college but you know in America where this liberal arts education which obviously we all spend or we will spend tons and tons of money on for basically very few usable skills in most cases it's truly a luxury I mean it helps us mature it helps us find ourselves I guess it helps you become more intellectually curious and is probably worth it um in the long run to be you know more uh, open to new ideas and a chance to meet people from different diverse backgrounds, but it's truly a luxury. I mean, I, I'm sure I could be as good a surgeon now if I hadn't been a history major, but my life is richer because of it. And obviously that's kind of the mantra we've been taught in America. Right.
0: I'm going to push on that a little bit because Mm -hmm. I was an English, I was an English major and a genetics major. And, So, so, so I have like the, so I have the STEM background and the master's in education, but I think learning how to learn is maybe the most useful thing that I picked up in college. Um, I'm not technically using any of my degrees anymore.
1: (laughs) Right. So you agree with me. So,
0: but I've never not been able to get a job. It doesn't matter what my degree
1: is. That's Um, because in our country, we have basically said a a degree is a credential you need to open the door. And I do think liberal arts education is wonderful. I've just said it was a luxury though. Mm. I mean, you could. That's fair. Yeah. So I'm glad I got that opportunity. Um, But if you're, Practically speaking, I mean, I think it makes our society better. Whether or not it's worth it is, is arguable. Obviously, it depends on what college you go to or how much you spend on it or how much <laughs> debt you go into. But um, I would just point out that in many countries, they don't have that same viewpoint, right? True. So they, yeah. Um, yeah
0: man like the like the asian entrance exams where it's like you oh, must yeah. de- <laughs> oh,
1: you the
0: test you take in 7th grade determines what I you was a late rumor I would have done
1: badly in the elementary school and I would not have I would not have done well I would have been <laughs> something different I'm sure
0: yeah but i mean we kind of have some we we have high stakes testing in the U.S. too. It's just a different way to do it. I'm like touring preschools right now to decide where to send my kid next year. And they're like, oh, yeah, we do the we run them through the kindergarten state assessment. I'm like, kindergarten oh my gosh. state assessment. That's just depressing.
1: So You will see as your child grows up, like it's kind of like we have all these first world problems. Right. So we're, we're now in the point where we want to give the ideal way. To, you know, obviously all of us want to give our kids every opportunity to succeed but not give them so much that they have no ambition or drive to succeed on their own. That's difficult. And one of the things I I mentioned that like a lot of doctors, kids don't become doctors. I mean, I honestly think that, you know, becoming a physician is so arduous, so many years of delayed gratification, you're going into debt. Kids who have grit or have experienced some hardship in life, uh, are the ones who are going to be able to do that better? Kids who have had it easier, like doctors' kids, they may <laughs> not have that. They, they, you know, honestly, a lot of them want to go into business or finance because that's what they see uh, as an easier way to the success that they see. Right. So these are, of course, terrible stereotypes and overgeneralizations. But the point is that it's a new culture. You know, like every one of us uh, will say, "I, my kids." My parents let me just run around after school. I just came home for dinner. They never helped me with my homework. They didn't care what colleges I applied to. I never studied for the SAT. I just took it, things like that. And now we have all these material comforts in general. And now we're putting our focus into our kids. And it's not wrong to help our kids succeed, but it's much harder than it seems to limit your own ambition for your kids sometimes or to limit them in some way to restrain yourself from doing all that you think you can do to help them find themselves or enrich their lives i mean they're so structured there's almost no unsupervised time for our kids these days
0: yeah i i kind of went through a quarter life crisis and i just like through everything <laughs> like I, you know i left my teaching job i was and my parents were like oh my god what is she doing but mm. i'm glad i had like a couple years to ju- i mean i didn't like it at the time but i i'm grateful for the time i had to just like muck around and make mistakes and learn things right. um what isn't isn't there a quote from one of the star wars movies failure is the greatest teacher or something like that um
1: yeah i know star even though it sucks wars at the very time well but yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you have any advice for Asian Americans who maybe are interested in the humanities, but also a career in medicine or I don't know, one of the more conventional, if you like careers.
1: So I think Asian America is really, not only is it not homogenous at all, it's very diverse. And not only that, we're at a point in time where, people's fam- families have been, there's all different levels of immigration, right? So mm-hmm. there are people who just arrived, their parents are recently immigrated. Uh, there's the, cl- the typical where uh, the, the older generations where the, their, the parents would come for grad school in the 60s after the quotas were lifted for immigration and their children were like my generation who went to college maybe in the 90s and, and everything in between. Um, and um, people have different challenges within their own family groups, right? So you may have traditional parents who really feel like, you know, the professions of like medicine or engineering are crucial. You may have others who are a little bit different and and see business and law. And then there's other more enlightened people, maybe who think that humanity is great, just be happy and follow your dreams. Obviously, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do what you love and to follow your dreams. I think that um, you have to balance that desire with um being practical uh, to some degree i mean i've you have people on one side of the spectrum who were like my f- people who i know in medicine who didn't want to be doctors but they felt they had to to please their parents and you have other people whose parents said follow your dream you know try to be a concert pianist or a baller- ballet dancer but they didn't make it because it's just so difficult and they i, I, I talked to someone she wasn't asian but she regretted that her parents had encouraged her to pursue ballet dancing. She was in nursing school in her 30s. And she said, I wish my parents had just told me to stop in my mid-20s. But they told me to go to LA and try. And for 10 years, I tried. I, I was a bartender. I was I was a waitress. And I never really made it. And, I, and not, now I have two kids. And I wish I had just gone to nursing school in, the middle, in my mid-20s. So the advice is, I guess, my advice is that it's much easier to excel at something you love. So if you don't love medicine or don't like people or dealing with people when they're sick, then don't go to medical school. There's other ways to make a lot of money or more money or, or money in general. Um, there's other ways to help people. If you just don't like sick people, you can be a teacher, you know? So I think that you have to find your, be true to yourself And I think that it's very hard to excel at something unless you love it. At the same time, it's very easy to excel at something if you love it, you know, because that you'll do it um, and won't feel like work. So to me, like I love history. I never thought I'd ever write books, but I happened to do it because I loved the history that was the basis for the effort. Right. So. I think that whatever your circumstances, it's good to follow your dreams. It's good to be practical and get a job that is provides economic security. But just keep in mind, do what you love if you can. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for your time.
1: Sure. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your podcast. I think it's really interesting interviews you do with others. So thank you. Thank you.
0: Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to Chief Executive Anti. You can find show notes, resource links, and more anti rants at chiefexecutiveante.com. That's Chief Executive, A U N T I E.com. Special thanks to Sue Ann Shaw, who mixed and mastered this episode and composed the music, Alyssa De La Rosa, who created the branding, and my distribution partner, Mochi Magazine. Check out more stories for Asian American women at www.mochimag.com. That's M-O-C-H-I-M-A-G.com. See you next time.
1: We'll